Let's pray. Father, thank you for this rain that you have given to us today. May it nourish the ground. May this morning our hearts be nourished as we open up the word of God and get from it that which you would have us, the milk and the meat of the word. I pray, Father, that you would help each of us to to humble ourselves before you and to, to learn the lesson that you so graphically taught about true servanthood, true humility, as you stoop down to wash the feet of sinful men. Lord, we thank you for your example to us. We thank you for the word of God that washes us clean. We thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus that, first of all, initially washes us clean of all our sins so that we can stand positionally righteous before you. And then the word of God, which can keep us cleansed in our fellowship, our communion with you on a daily basis. Lord, we have a lot to cover this morning. I pray that you would help your servant to think clearly, to speak quickly, and may all of our thoughts here in this room today today together collectively elevate the lord jesus and he alone for he alone does deserve all the glory and honor and praise and we pray in his name amen wednesday evening of the lord's passion week and of course after sundown and it does say over in mark fourteen seventeen that it was the evening when he came together in the upper room with his 12 disciples so it was probably somewhere close to sundown so even though it would be our wednesday what day of the week would it be according to jewish reckoning of time the very early hours of thursday morning the 14th of nisan So Wednesday evening, our time, but early Thursday morning, found the Lord and all 12 of his disciples reclining at a table prepared for them by who? Which two disciples? Peter and John in the upper room, which tradition says belonged to the parents of John, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. The disciples, now as they're gathered, they likely were expecting to celebrate a normal Passover observance with the Lord as they had shared with him on previous Passovers since they had been following him. They had absolutely no idea whatsoever that the evening would not only become a time of embarrassing disgrace for them, but also that it would be one of the most special evenings of, of greatest significance that they had ever spent with the Lord. Nor did they understand that it would be their final night with him, even though he had told them late Tuesday afternoon that in two more days he would be crucified. Now this lesson, as you can see in your notes, is entitled what? Teaching in a towel. Teaching in a towel. It is about yet another lesson on humility and servanthood. And through our six and a half years so far of the life of Christ, he has taught his men many times about humility and servanthood. So this is yet another lesson. And this is another lesson that the disciples would have to learn the hard way. Too bad we have to learn so many lessons in life the hard way, don't we? That's what they had to do. It was taught in living illustration by the Lord himself, and I can guarantee you it was a lesson that they would never, ever, ever forget. So we're going to begin by looking at Luke chapter 22. You can see our outline consists of three parts. We're going to look at selfish contention. That's when the disciples are arguing among themselves. Then we're going to look at selfless condescension, the Lord girding himself with a towel, 
and selflessly bowing down, stooping down to white, to clean, wash the disciples' feet. And then third of all, Simon's, who's that? Peter, Simon's contradiction. You can always count on Simon to put his foot in his mouth. <laughs> Simon Peter. So let's begin by looking at Luke 22. I'm going to read verses 14 to 16, and then I'm going to skip and go to verse 24. And the reason for that is because what occurs in verses 17 to 23 is the Lord's Supper. And they know from Matthew and Mark that the Lord's Supper didn't happen until after the, the Passover Supper. Okay? So this is out of sequence. So I'm going to skip and then jump to verse 24. Let's begin by looking at verses 14 to 16. It says, And when the hour was come, he, Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you when? Before I suffer. Obviously, he couldn't eat it with them the next night after he suffered because he would be dead. We talked about that last week. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now skip the Lord's Supper there. And uh, actually, if you look at verse 20, it says after supper. So we do know that happened later in the evening. And now look with me at verses 24 to 30. And there was also a strife among them which is among the disciples which of them should be accounted the greatest and he jesus said unto them the kings of the gentiles exercise lordship over them and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors but ye shall not be so but he that is greatest among you let him be as the younger meaning let him be as the least among you and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whither is greater, whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. What he's saying there is, who's the greater? Those that are sitting down at the table or the one who is serving those sitting at the table? Now we would say those who are being served, but he says, and I am among you, and who? what am I doing? I am serving you. So the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who serves the others, right? That's his point. He says, verse 28, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, anticipating all of the blessings and all of the benefits that his death as the Passover lamb would bring to not only his men but to all mankind, the Lord said to the disciples after they had all sat down, he said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Since he was the fulfillment of the Passover and would be dead by the following evening, Right, He would die at 3 o'clock the following evening. Actually, according to Jewish calculation, calculations, it would be that same day because this was the early wee hours of Thursday morning, the 14th of Nisan. Later on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 14th of Nisan, he would suffer and die as the Passover lamb, the once-for-all Passover lamb. So he wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover meal with his men the next night. That's why he had it the night before. He had to celebrate the Passover and eat the Passover meal with his men before he died. That just makes common sense, doesn't it? And then we talked about the fact that maybe they actually did celebrate two nights because there were just so many people and they couldn't slaughter that many lambs in just a two-hour period of time. 
The phrase, with desire, I have desired, that was an idiom, a, a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew expression that was used to express intensity. He was saying here that he exceedingly, deeply desired to eat the Passover with his men. His love for them was such that he intensely wanted to fellowship and eat that final, immensely significant meal with them. He had been looking forward to this night, this last night with his men for a long, long time. He knew all that he was going to teach them that night, all he was going to express to them about his love for them, his continuous love for them. He knew he was going to um, transpose the Passover supper into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. He knew all these things, and he was longing you know, don't you know, for three and a half years of public ministry, he was longing to get things done, finished, completed, his redemption for mankind over with. So he desired to have this meal with them. He also told them in verse 16 that he would not again eat the Passover with them until everything that the Passover symbolically looked forward to was accomplished. And this includes the completion of the exodus of Israel into the promised land, the kingdom of God. You know, the original Passover was Israel's exodus from Egypt. Egypt pictures the world. She passed into the promised land of, of Israel. You know, she had to go through the wilderness, you know, but then she went into the promised land. That Passover will find its completion, its full fulfillment, when Israel... And all of us who are called spiritual Israel, everyone who's born again throughout all the ages, we are called spiritual Israel. Israel and spiritual Israel, we will have an exodus out of this world, this Egypt, into the promised land of the millennial kingdom. That's when the Passover will find its full fulfillment. And he was longing for that, and he said he wouldn't eat with them again, the Passover, until the Passover was completely fulfilled, all the significance of it. When we understand the Lord's words here at the beginning of his last night with his men and we realize his absolute selfless anticipation of the blessings for others that his own death would bring, it is really very difficult to believe what we read next. You know, he's so selfless. He's anticipating everything that his own death would bring for, for others. And what happens next? We have to skip those verses, but we go to verse 24. We find out that that which happened next was strife among the disciples. All it took, you see, was for Jesus to mention the kingdom of God and their thoughts, the disciples' thoughts, immediately centered on which one of them would be counted the greatest. Where? In the kingdom. <laughs> which one would get to sit on his right hand and which one would get to sit on his left hand? Who was going to get to sit in the seats of honor in the kingdom? So this was how the Lord's last Passover supper with his men, actually his last supper with his men, began. After he had just expressed his wholehearted, intense desire to share the Passover with his men, they expressed their intense, selfish desires to receive honor and recognition. Not a very good reflection on the deceitful hearts of man, is it? I mean, these are the apostles. Sometimes we elevate them in our minds, don't we? But they were just like you and I. They were sinners, saved by grace. Discord was apparently already brewing in their hearts and minds because of the seating arrangement at the Passover table. Now, we learned in some of our previous studies that this was always a sore spot among the men. 
And this was, the not, not, this was not the first time that this kind of trouble had erupted. Actually, this is the third recorded time that the disciples disputed themselves over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember back in Luke 9:46, after the Mount of Transfiguration experience, where Jesus only took the three inner disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw his glory unveiled and he was there with Moses and Elijah. And they came down from the mountain and the rest of the disciples were trying to cast a demon out of a, a, a man's son. Well, right after all of that, there was contention about who was the greatest. You know, they were probably saying, well, it wasn't fair that those three got to see it, you know, and whatever. And he had to tell, you know, give them a little lesson on humility. And then the next time there was contention was in Matthew 20, verses 20 and 24. Remember, James and John sent Mama, <laughs> Mother Salome, to Jesus to ask if her two sons could sit when he goes in, comes into his kingdom. <laughs> That's pretty pathetic. They really are, act like children, don't they? And it, don't we too? Yes, we do. Uh, wanted to sit on the right and left hand, you know, when he came into his kingdom. And that, of course, made the other ten furious when they found out about it. So they had a, another little argument. Here they were, a group of grown men acting just like immature children. Children do this kind of thing, don't they? Oh, I want to sit next to Grandma. I just had that last week. <laughs> Every time we sat down at the meal, I want to sit next to Grandma. There's three of them, so it's not very, you know, somebody has to not sit next to Grandma. <laughs> uh, but they're just acting like children. No wonder he called them children. In John 21, 5, he said, Children, have ye any meat? That was in one of his post-resurrection appearances. He called them children because they acted like children. And where do you think they had learned such childish behavior? They were actually following in the footsteps of Israel's religious rulers, weren't they? The scribes and the Pharisees put great emphasis on their seating places of honor at banquets and in the synagogues. Uh, and the Lord had just talked about that in his denunciation discourse in Matthew 23 when he said, you know, the scribes and Pharisees always want the seats of honor. They always want to be lifted up on the platform and they want to, you know, hear, they just want, they just want all the recognition. And that, you know, that might seem like a long time ago, but that was just Tuesday. The denunciation discourse was Tuesday. This is Wednesday <laughs> or early Thursday morning. So you think it would be fresh in their minds. He had actually said in Matthew 23, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. He had just said that Tuesday. And they were there listening. He had also said, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. They, they had just heard those words. Didn't quite sink in, did it? Here they are fighting over where they're going to sit. It was the established rule <clears throat> that in the company of three or more people, the chief person or the, the head, which in this case would be Christ, was to recline. And you know they ate reclining. They had like chaises or sofas or pillows, and they would eat reclining. They would lean on their left arm and eat with their right hand like this, and they'd be laying, and their feet would be going back behind them that way. We'll talk about that more later, but that's how they were. And the, and the chief person was to be in the middle, and then the places of honor were, of course, located to the immediate right and the immediate left of the head. And then the order of prominence went on down the line from there. 
The disciples' argument apparently arose out of their jealousy for the chief seats of honor on the left and on the right of Jesus when he, you know, reclined there at the Passover table. Now, we do know, I'm not going to get into this, but we do know from Scripture, and this is in your notes, that at his right was John and at his left was Judas. We know that. Um, We don't know if the Lord himself seated them. You know, maybe they had, what do you call those little things? Name? Name? Place card. Yeah. I don't know if he put, I'm sure he didn't, place cards at their seating or if the Lord just said, you sit here, you sit here, whatever, you know. Or if when they came in the room, they all, you know, struggled, ran to get to get the seats first. We, we don't know how the seating was um, arranged. But what we do know is that they foolishly and selfishly argued about who among them was the greatest. And, you know, when men are interested in promoting themselves or women, it doesn't take a whole lot to start an argument. Obviously, the issue regarding the honor order among them had never been resolved to their satisfaction. So after hearing Jesus say that he would not again eat the Passover until its fulfillment in the kingdom of God, in verse 16, they took it to mean that the kingdom would come into existence before the next Passover. You see how they took that? They didn't know like we do that it would be some 2,000 years at least. They, when he said, I won't eat it again with you until the Passover be fulfilled uh, and the kingdom is here, they were thinking that the kingdom would be established before the next Passover. Therefore, they were determined to have this matter, this issue of apostolic ranking, resolved once and for all. And the result was that they were selfishly seeking honored positions at the Passover table just a matter of hours before Jesus would hang on a cruel cross. Makes them look really bad, doesn't it? Hmm. They weren't thinking of him at all. You know how many times he told them he was going to die? And like I said, Matthew 26, too, he had just told them he would die in two days. But they weren't, they weren't focused on him at all. They're fighting about who's the most important among them. One of them, one of them was concerned about his silver. Who was that? Judas. Eleven of them were concerned about their seats. But none of them expressed any concern for the Savior. Well, the Lord reprimanded, reprimanded them. He did so very gently, in my opinion. He told them that they were behaving like the pagan Gentiles and not like children of God at all. That's in verses 25 and 26. You know, the world might judge the importance of a man or a woman by how many people he or she rules over. Isn't that the world, how the world judges somebody? How many they rule over, but God is interested in how many people we serve. It's just the opposite of the world. The Christian is to esteem others higher than himself. He is to be tender-hearted and always thoughtful of others, always thinking of other people more than himself or herself, seeking how he might best use his spiritual gifts to serve others. Like Christ, even if he or she is facing trials in his own life, her life, He puts himself to the task of serving others, which is exactly what Jesus... I mean, Jesus is facing the biggest trial of all history that very day, later on in that day. He's going to be crucified. And yet, what does he do? He focuses on... He's not focused on himself and his 
trials, upcoming trials, he's focused on serving others. That's what he does in a minute. He's going to, you know, wash the disciples' feet. And by the way, that is absolutely the best way. Did you know that? It's the best way to forget about your own problems. The very best way to forget about your, you know, not to get out of a pity party is to focus on others and to serve others. There's always somebody out there who has more problems than you do, believe it or not. Always somebody. Focus on them, not on yourself. And you'll be, get so busy focusing on others, you won't have time to think about yourself. Your head will hit the pillow and you'll be snoring next thing you know. <laughs> There is absolutely no reason for Christians to compete with one another for any kind of recognition. Absolutely not. Or to try to promote ourselves or to try to promote our ministries. We are all fellow servants. We're all bond slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should simply concern ourselves with our faithfulness to whatever work the Lord has called each of us to do. You know, just concentrate on being faithful to that work which he has called you to do individually. Don't try to compare yourself with anybody else. It's not a competition. And what should we do about rewards, future rewards? Just trust those to the Lord. He's, he knows. He's going to take care of all that. We don't need to concentrate and argue and fuss and fume and compete to, for rewards. Just be faithful. It is required of a man that he be found what? Faithful. Well, speaking of future rewards, the Lord reminded his men of their future reward in the kingdom. He says, uh, well, they would be rewarded. I really do think he treats them like children because they are acting like children. You know, don't you do that with a child? First of all, you have to kind of reprimand them. You know, you shouldn't be fighting with your sister. Uh, I want you to be a good boy. If you'll just be obedient and kind. There, I'll, you know, maybe we'll go to Walmart later on and get you something. Or if you're a good boy, you maybe can get some M&Ms later on. And that's basically what he's doing. He lightly reprimanded them saying, you know, you don't, aren't supposed to act like the world. You're supposed to act like children of God. And you are going to get a future reward. He said, ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. He's saying, because you have stood by me through all the trials that I have been through. You didn't turn and walk no more with me like those other disciples back in John chapter 6. You've stood by me and you will be appointed to special positions of honor in my kingdom. You will, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. All except for who? Judas. Judas would be replaced by Matthias. Okay, let's move on to selfish condescension. And for this, you do need to turn over to John 13. John 13. Now, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are known as the upper room discourse. The Lord's last message to his men, his farewell address. And the one thing that Christ reveals to his men in these chapters over and over and over again is his love for them. He is going away. He knows he is going away very soon, and he wants to re reassure them of his unending, undying love for them. All five chapters, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, are spent communicating his love to his men. In chapter 13, as we're going to see, he washes their feet. Then he gives them his last words in chapters 14, 15, and 16, which if you look at them, they are full of him 
<laughs> promising that he loves them. Even though he will be absent from them, he is going to return again and take them to where he is, you know, speaking in, about the rapture there. He's going to come and get them, and they'll be with him. Then uh, he, he promises that even though he's going, he's going to send the comforter. And over and over again in those chapters, he tells them how much he loves them, and he's only thinking of them, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then he prays the high priestly prayer for them in John chapter 17, which again tells them over and over again about his love for them. He loves them so much he's praying to his father for them. And then after that, he willingly allows himself to be nailed to a cross, which supremely shows his love for them. So in the rest of his time with his own, the Lord Jesus did everything, everything that his infinite mind could think of to reassure his men and you and I who read this, of his unending love for them. He could have been preoccupied with himself, couldn't he? He could have been preoccupied with himself. On the one hand, he could have been preoccupied about his upcoming suffering. On the other hand, he could have been preoccupied with the glory that was soon to be his when he would ascend back to heaven and sit on the right hand of his father. But he wasn't. He wasn't preoccupied with himself at all. He was our example about dying to self. He was preoccupied with his men and demonstrating and expressing his love for them. Now, the greatest characteristic of love is its humility. Humility. Humility is what makes love serviceable. Without humility, you don't really serve other people. You have to be humble to be willing to be a servant. Loveless, proud people feel too distinguished, too important to do the menial little tasks. But Jesus, even knowing that he was the Lord of the universe, loved his own so much, loved you and I so much, that he was willing to express that love by going to an old rugged cross for us. And in this example, he was willing to stoop down and wash the feet of sinful men. That is the true character of divine love. What do we call divine love in Greek? What is it? Agape love, unconditional love. We are told by John, um, not John, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that love does not seek its own, does it? Love is not all about self. It's selfless, true love, agape love, God's kind of love. It always gives. How is love best demonstrated? By actions. By giving. It's not puffed up. That was part of the problem with these men, right? Puffed up, proud, wanted the seats of honor. It does not behave itself unseemly. Ooh, ooh, what were they doing? They were doing the opposite of all this. True love, what true love is. And love is not easily provoked. There's another one. In order to express his love to his men and to teach them a much-needed lesson on humility, in a way that they would never forget, Jesus added now a very significant action section to the words he had just spoken to them over in Luke 22. The words we just read, you know, when he reprimanded them, you know, you shouldn't behave like the, the Gentiles. Now he's going to illustrate in living color the words he had just spoken to them. He taught them more by this act <laughs> than probably all the words that he could ever speak to them on the subject of humility and servanthood. How do we learn best? 
Do we learn best by what somebody says or by what somebody does? Actions speak louder, don't they? How is love best demonstrated? Words or actions? You know, you could say you love me all day long, but if you never do anything to show me that you love me, your words mean nothing, right? Amen. So in order to express uh, his love to them, he added this significant action section to his words. Uh, And now in John 13, we're going to read verses 1 to 5, but in the first three verses, we find that the emphasis is on what Jesus knew, and then in verses uh, 4 and 5, the emphasis is on what he did. All right, so let's look at John 13, 1 to 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, which is uh, technically actually in the Greek, it means, and supper being taking place. It's actually still in progress. The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Now, that's what he knew. Those three verses are what Jesus knew. Now we're going to get to what he did. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. All right, verse 1 here says that Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he was going to depart out of this world. He wasn't just going to die, was he, and be annihilated. He was going to depart from this world and go to the Father. The divinely established hour when he would be glorified through his substitutionary death and his uh, on the cross and his burial and his resurrection and then, of course, his ascension back into uh, heaven to his father had finally come. He'd been talking about his, his hour ever since his first miracle. Where did he perform his first miracle? In Cana, when he turned water into wine and his mother, you know, came to him and he said, Mother, my hour hasn't yet come. He's been talking about his hour all along. Now he knows that the hour has come, that he would die and be glorified. In addition to being told here of the omniscient knowledge of Jesus, we are also told of his love for those who belong to him. He loved his own which were in the world, and he loved them how long? Unto the end, it says. Now that phrase, unto the end, refers to the furthest extent to the, what's another word? To the uttermost. In Greek, it's istelos. Istelos. T-E-L-O-S is what the, it comes from the same verb that Jesus said on the cross when it was finished. Te telestai. It is finished. It, it means to perfection. He loved them to perfection, to completion, to uh, the fullness, the total fullness that love can go. To the, to the uttermost. He loved his men to the furthest extent of their need. And how long would they need him? Till the end of the Passover? No, to the end of eternity. And there is no end to eternity. <laughs> he would love them all the way through the cross, all the way through the grave, and on into eternity. He loves them to the uttermost. 
It is a word that has no superior. He loved them to the impossibility that love could go. You know, it's just, it's like John. You know, when John was writing the, his first epistle, he, to express the love of God, you could say, well, it's fantastic, it's superb, it's, it's marvelous, it's amazing, it's great, it's stupendous, it's magnificent. You could give me all kinds of adjectives, right? But John couldn't quite get his arms around God's love, so what did he say? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath given to, unto us. That's, you know, we just can't even comprehend. It's to the uttermost. Just because he was going to be departing from them, it would not mean that he would ever, ever stop loving them, which they otherwise might have thought. They might have thought, especially since they all failed him, didn't they? They all scattered from him at the cross. You know, Peter denied him. Uh, of course, one betrayed him, but he that's a different story. But Peter denied him. They all scattered from him. Then he, even when they, he, he came back to them in his um, glorified body, was it Philip who said, you know, show us the Father and we'll believe? And he said, Philip, have I been so long with you and you don't know who I am yet? And then what about Thomas? <laughs> he said, I won't even believe until I see the nail prints. And yet they all failed him. So they might have thought that they were such failures. And when they looked back and thought, oh, goodness, he was going to die that day. And there we were arguing. He doesn't love us anymore. Peter had this problem. That's why the Lord had to come to Peter specially and restore him and say, Peter, dost thou love me? You know, three times to counteract his three denials. But they might have thought that he would stop loving them. So he assures them, no, I will never to the uttermost. I will never stop loving you. He loves. This is the good part. He loves you and I. If you're his, his own, he loves us with the same uttermost love. That's comforting, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I absolutely fail him every single day. We are his precious treasures, the objects of his unconditional love. And even though I do not know why he bothers to love me, <laughs> I don't know. Yet he will love us on into eternity. His faithfulness in loving us will endure for as long as we have need for him. And that will be for all of eternity. In spite of our failures, in spite of our wanderings, in spite of our doubts, in spite of our misunderstandings, our self-centeredness, and our spiritual lack of perception, he loves us to the uttermost. That is comforting, isn't it? His love never fails. Well, since verse 3 continues to tell us other things that Jesus knew, it's obvious that the mention of Judas there in verse 2 is included so that we know that Jesus also knew this thing, this truth. He also knew that Satan had put the idea to betray him into Judas's heart. Now, the Greek word for put in that verse, the supper being ended, which actually means taking place, still taking place. It's given again in that ingressive aortis tense, which means absolutely nothing to you, but it should say that supper is still taking place. The devil having now put, you see that word put in the Greek? It literally means throw. So it actually reads the devil having now thrown into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of the fiery darts of Satan that we read about in Ephesians 6.16, where it says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith all, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts, the fiery darts that are thrown at us by Satan, fiery darts of the wicked. You see, because Judas was not a genuine believer, he did not 
have the divinely provided armor of God to protect him from what? The fiery darts of the evil one that were thrown at him. And therefore, he fell. That's why it's so important to have our armor on, right? We need that shield of faith because Satan is out there, especially in these last days. He is really, really busy and throwing fiery darts at, at everybody, everywhere. You need your shield of faith to protect you. Judas didn't have that. And because his opportunity, we talked about this last week, was so immense to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk day by day, face to face to Jesus for some three years. His opportunity was so immense. I'm talking about Judas. Because he had been given so much. You know, there he was day by day basking in the light of the world and yet living continuously in darkness because of this because he had been given so much to whom much is given much is required because he was given so much had so much opportunity his fall was immense it even says that judas went to his own place some kind of place in hell that's just reserved for him apparently think about this other than satan himself who had the greatest fall who had the greatest opportunity of anyone satan who was lucifer was one of the 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 shining angel that stood right by the throne of God, right, Phyllis? Um, Had so much opportunity. He had the greatest fall. But other than Satan, I would say, as far as men are concerned, Judas had the greatest fall among men to be an apostle and yet to betray the Lord. Well, then in verse 3, we find yet another thing Jesus knew about the future. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. You see what Jesus knew? He knew what you and I can know as well. He knew who he was. Do you know who you are or are you out there still trying to find yourself? Isn't that amazing? People are out there trying to find themselves. You're trying to find yourself. I'm looking right at you. What's your problem? (laughs) He knew who he was. He knew he was the son of God. Do you know who you are? You're a beloved treasure of of God. You know, you were created in his image. You're, um, I hope you are, you're a born again child of God. And if you're not, you need to take care of that today before you leave this room. Uh, He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. Lost my place. (laughs) He knew where he was going. Where in the world am I? Verse (laughs) 3. I'm trying to find myself. (laughs) Who said that? Lois. That was good. Yes, I am trying to find myself. (laughs) He knew where he came from. Do you know where you came from? I came from my mama and my daddy. (laughs) No, but I know that I was, you know, that the Lord knew about me before I was in my mother's womb, before the foundation of the world was established. He knew where where he came from. He knew why he was here. Do you know why you're here? We're here. Our number one purpose is to glorify God, isn't it? And to be witnesses of Christ to the world. And he knew where he was going. Do you know where you're going? Hope you do. I hope you know without a shadow of a doubt that you've gone from hope so to no so because you can he knew these things and therefore he was the complete master of his situation you know how you can remain cool calm and collected in any situation like he was all throughout his trials and his crucifixion he remained he was the one who was in control everybody else was falling apart 
but he was cool, calm, and collected. How can you remain cool, calm, and collected in, in crises if you know who you are, where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going? You know, if you have eternity as your focus, you can survive all the trials, can't you? Like the Lord did. Not just get through them barely. You can even be an overcomer in the midst of them. Uh the statement that Jesus was fully cognizant of his person and his power is given to us purposely here to further enhance the amazing condescension of the service that he was about to perform. Think about it. He knew who he was. He knew that he was the Lord of the universe. What did it say? He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. That's an amazing statement right there, isn't it? All things into his hands. That includes all the, the created beings of the universe and the whole universe and everything that's in it. Even Satan was in his, under his control. All things into his hands. He knew he was deity. He knew he was even uh, the creator God. And he knew that all creation, except for man, had to obey his every command. Haven't we seen that? Even the demons had to obey him. Uh, the storms had to obey him. The fish had to jump into the nets. All create, except man, all creation had to obey him. He gave man free will. Didn't make us like robots. He also knew that he was soon to return to the throne of heaven. And yet, in spite of all that knowledge, he willingly made himself of no reputation, as it says in Philippians 2.7. He willingly girded himself in a towel to perform the work of a common slave. Why did he do that? He did it in order to teach those he loved that he loved them to the uttermost. This was a much-needed visual lesson on humility and servanthood. And don't you know that the disciples immediately went from strife mode <laughs> to stunned silence as they watched the Lord arise from the supper table lay aside his own garment. Some say he probably even went down to just his undergarment and then wrapped himself in a servant's towel and poured some water into a basin, which tells us that the basin and the water were there in the room. This was a common Eastern practice, you know, because they walked everywhere. They didn't have cars, so the people walked, and sandals were in <laughs> back then. And so you, your feet would get very dusty. They'd either get dusty or, like on a day to, like today, they'd get muddy. So when you went into a house, there was always a basin of water and a pitcher there. I mean, a, 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 a pitcher of water and a basin. <laughs> so that, and it was usually the, the, um, the job of the, the lowest slave in the household to do that. But obviously when the disciples went into the upper room, they just went in with dirty feet. Because all of them were too proud and too eager to get to the best seats that they didn't bother to wash they're even their own feet, much less one. You know, it's it's one thing for us to serve to to wipe to wash the feet of one another because we're just all fellow servants, right? I mean that that's kind of a, a big thing, for but not that big compared to God washing our feet, right? Um, so there there is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who eleven of them acknowledge is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and He gets up and does what none of them had been willing to do. And can't you just imagine how humiliated they are by this? 
And one by one, he washes, he stoops down and he washes their dirty, stinking, <laughs> calloused, crusty, fisherman, sinful feet. And then he carefully wipes them dry with the towel in which he was girded. And without a single spoken word, his action instantly rebuked all their pride and selfishness, didn't it? What do they say? An action speaks a million words right there. And you can just about picture the disciples hanging their heads in terrible shame, dumbfounded, brokenhearted, and probably even weeping, some of them, embarrassed that their own proud hearts had kept them from doing what the master was now doing. You know, I bet after this, <laughs> I bet after this, every time they entered a room and several times after this, <clears throat> that there was a contest to see who would get to the water first to wash the other's feet. <laughs> but this visual aid lesson we know so impressed Peter that years later, when he was inspired to write his first epistle, the first epistle of Peter, he urged his readers to be clothed with humility. That's First Peter 5.5. 5. And don't you know that as he's writing those words, the image of his Savior and Lord, the creator of the universe, girded in a servant's towel and bent down before him, probably brought tears to his eyes as he recalled that special moment. They all got the lesson that night, except for Judas, but they got that lesson. Well, it's interesting to make this comparative note. You know, it's a lot of fun when you, when you read the scriptures to do contrasts and comparisons, and I have you doing a lot of that in questions, don't I, homework questions? Well, this is an interesting one to me. Just two lessons ago, I know it was like five months ago because it was back in our last lesson in the spring, but uh, I think it was lesson 141 or something in your books, 140, broken and spilled out. It was actually just two lessons ago in the book, the scene where Mary of Bethany anointed the Lord's feet with her expensive perfume. In that scene, and that's at the beginning of John 12. Now we're at the beginning of John 13. So at the beginning of John 12, the Holy Spirit had us focused on the feet of Jesus, right? Mary anointed his from head to toe, but she anointed his feet with her expensive perfume. And now here at the beginning of John 13, we are focused on the feet of the disciples, right? Feet of Jesus in John 12. Now we're focused on the feet of the disciples in John 13. However, there is a very distinct difference. The feet of Jesus were anointed with what? Costly, expensive, uh, perfumed oil. Whereas the feet of the disciples were washed with water. Right. What is the significance of that? You know, as the Lord passed through this sin-cursed world for some 33 years, he contracted, contacted absolutely zero defilement. No defilement. He left this world just as he had come into it, which was perfect, holy, undefiled, unblemished. You know, feet, and this is one of your homework questions, feet in the scripture symbolize one's walk with the Lord. That makes sense. That's easy, isn't it? <laughs> feet symbolize our walk with the Lord. Jesus' walk with the Father was perfect. And therefore, his feet needed no washing. But they were anointed 
They were anointed in worship on two occasions. The first time Jesus' feet were anointed was with, does anybody remember? Tears. Very good. Are you looking at your notes? Maybe <laughs> They were anointed with human tears of love and gratitude from, from an unnamed woman at Simon the Pharisee's home. That's back in Luke 7:38. The second time the Lord's feet were anointed was with the fragrant oil of perfume spikenard by a named woman, Mary of Bethany, at Simon the leper's home. Isn't that interesting? First time was at Simon the Pharisee's home. Second time, Simon the leper's home. Interestingly, the anointing of Christ's feet was performed by two women. Don't you just love this? And the men would be so mad at me if they were in Bible study because I'm always talking about how great the women. I mean, here the guys are arguing over who's the greatest and what are the women doing. I mean, I'm not making this up. It's in there. The women are <laughs> anointing his feet and worshiping him. <laughs> now, the law required two witnesses, right? The law required two witnesses for a testimony to be established. Although the Jews, the Jews would not accept the witness of women. Isn't that sad? They wouldn't accept the validity. You see what Jesus did to women? Aren't you glad that we serve the living God and not the God of Allah? Who pushes women down like dogs? Jesus elevated women. Even though the Jews would not accept the witness of women, God did. And together, these two women testified, two, takes two, they testified as to the Lord's perfection. They didn't wash him, his feet, with water. They washed his feet with tears. He came, and, and oil. He came to give joy and hope to people through the shedding of his innocent blood. And his death deserves our thankful and worshipful tears. Does it not? and our gratitude, as the first woman did. His obedient death was also a sweet-smelling a sweet smelling savor, rising up like the most precious perfumed ointment to the satisfied nostrils of God. Beautiful picture. On the other hand now, the earthly walk of the disciples was defiled so the dirt and filth of this world, which they picked up on their feet as they passed through this life, had to be removed with what? Water. And what does water symbolize? It's another question in your homework sheet. Water symbolizes, it's a biblical symbol, symbol of the word of God. Ephesians 5, 25, 26 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself forth that he might sanctify and cleanse it with what? The washing of the water of the word by the word. It was the water that cleansed the disciples' feet. The literal water that the Lord used and the living water. Who was the living water? Jesus Christ himself, the word of God. He is the living word of God. He didn't use anointing oil on their feet because they were not holy and perfect. He did not use tears to wash their feet. Although I'm sure they, he, they made him feel like crying. <laughs> but he didn't use tears because they were not to be worshipped. They're just men. Nor did he use blood. 
by, you see, by their genuine faith in Jesus, at least of 11 of them genuinely had faith in him. Um, so they had already anticipatorily been pre-cleansed by the sinless blood that he would shed for them the next day. You know, they were already covered with the blood. In, in their faith, they were covered with the blood, even though he hadn't yet shed it. However, so he didn't cleanse them with the blood because they're already saved. And we'll talk about that in a minute when I talk about Peter. But, but as they walked through this life, they picked up worldly filth, daily sins. That was just proven. Were they sinners? Yes. In, you know, in position, they had already been covered with the blood in anticipation. But they were still sinners. And we just saw that the night before when they joined in with Judas and criticizing Mary for wasting her expensive perfume. Didn't we just see that in the upper room? What are they doing? Bickering over who's going to be the greatest. So, yes, they're picking up daily, daily filth on their feet. So they, were, they had to be cleansed, not with oil, not with tears, because they didn't, shouldn't be worshipped, but with water. The one-time cleansing by the sinless blood of Christ at salvation. One-time cleansing affects our positional standing before God. You know, we are only saved one time, we're covered with the blood, that then we are in Christ forever and ever. Okay? While the daily cleansing by the water of the word affects our practical state. The blood is for a ju judicial cleansing. In other words, the blood is for salvation. Whereas the daily cleansing by the water of the word is what we need for our moral purification, our practical pur purification. That's why over and over again you'll hear pastors say you need to be in this book on a daily basis. Every day we sin, and if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or I can't remember now how it goes, but, you know, First John 1, 9. I know that verse, and I just went blank. <laughs> But anyway, we need to be daily cleansed. We need to be in this book daily. Even though we've been once for all covered by the blood, we need to be daily cleansed with the water of the word. That's what I'm trying to say, and I didn't say it in a very good way, but hopefully you'll get it when you read your notes. Well, as we just read in John 13, too, the Lord knew full well that Satan was working through Judas to kill him by way of crucifixion, which involved the cruel piercing of the hands and feet, as you all know. And yet... You know, he knew that when he got to Judas, Judas was right on his left. John was on the right, Judas was on the left, so he probably got to Judas pretty quick, unless he started with John. I don't know how he went around there and do it. But when he did get to Judas, he knew that, um, that Judas was not yet possessed totally by Satan, but that Satan had already led him to the religious rulers to betray him. And yet Jesus willingly condescended to take those sin-defiled, Satan-inspired feet of Judas into his holy hands and wash them. Behold, what manner of love. I mean, he even had amazing love for his enemies, didn't he? To think that he even washed Judas's feet. And Judas didn't protest, did he? He just probably just as lovingly and just as carefully washed Judas's feet as he had the other 11 men. And he did so knowing that those same feet had recently run to Jerusalem to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. You know, the price of a gourd, uh, the price, I didn't mention this last week, but it's actually the price of not just a slave, but a pierced slave. 
a, a slave that had been um, pierced through. I think it was in the ears. A gourd-pierced slave. All right, let's look now at Simon's contradiction. I still don't have a watch, so what time is it? <laughs> Five after. Okay, that's good. All right, let's look at verses 6 to 11. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Can't help but love that guy, can you? <laughs> 180 degree turn right there. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. In other words, he, that's what I was just trying to t- tell you about. He who is washed the first time in salvation, washed once for all by the blood, you know, in faith, by the blood of the Passover lamb, needeth not except to wash his feet from, from the daily defilement. That's sanctification. The first one is salvation. The second one's talking about sanctification. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean. In other words, you are saved Peter, but not all. What's he talking about there? Judas, right. You're saved, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. When it was Peter's turn to have his feet washed, he apparently couldn't stand it anymore. I don't know when he got to Peter, but he was watching all this, and he just he just got to the point where he could not keep his tongue in his mouth any longer, and he blurted out his shocked feelings. He said, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? You know, if there was one who should have protested and said those words, who should it have been? Judas. When he got to Judas's feet, he's the one who should have said, dost thou wash my feet? I don't think he would have said Lord, but it should have been Judas, not Peter, who put up a protest. Peter must have become increasingly disturbed as he thought through the scene before him. Why should the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is what Peter had already confessed about Jesus, why should he stoop to wash the sinful, dirty feet of men, and especially of him? Uh, He knew what a sinner he was. It was just absolutely unthinkable to Peter to allow the Lord to continue to do so and, you know, to do his feet. Might have been okay with the other guy's feet, but not his feet. Why? And why had he been so self-centered? Why had he and the others been so self-centered? Why should they sit there and not protest the Lord of glory performing such a a menial task which was normally reserved for for slaves and even the lowliest of slaves. Well, so Peter, as he usually did, spoke out of his ignorance. Out of ignorance, Peter voiced his ignorance. And, you know, we can kind of empathize with him because probably if I was in Peter's sandals, I would have done the same thing. You know, you can't do this. Um, Peter was, you know, to us it looks like Peter was being graciously humble when he said, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And in a sense, he was. In a sense, he was being humble. Like John the Baptist, Peter knew he was not even worthy to loosen the latchet of the Lord's sandals, much less 
have his crusty <laughs> fisherman feet uh, washed by the master. But here's where Peter made a mistake. Peter's mistake was in questioning divine wisdom when he should have been silently and thankfully submissive to whatever the Lord saw fit to do, even if he didn't understand what the Lord was doing and why he was doing it. You know, John the Baptist had the same problem. You know, Lord, you want me to baptize you? And Jesus said yes, and John submitted and did it, didn't he? Um, By this time, you see, Peter should have known that there was always a purpose and always a lesson for whatever the Lord did. Listen to this. Obedience is more important to God than worship. Now, a lot of people have that wrong, but it's obedience is more important to God than worship. Why? Because without obedience, there is no true worship. You get it? It's wrong, always wrong, to question God's wisdom. It's always wrong to place our thoughts about what he should or should not do above his, even when we don't understand. It's wrong. Once again, you see, Peter was putting confidence in his own thinking. He was putting his thoughts about the situation above the Lord's thoughts, and that alone did not bring honor to the Lord. What brings honor to Christ is submission to his will, even if we don't understand his ways and why he does what he does. When we trust his ways above our own ways and submit to his higher wisdom, then we bring him the glory that he is due. Peter, by this time again, I say, Peter should have suspected (laughs) his own thoughts, you know, just from past experience and waited submissively for the Lord to explain what he was doing. He usually did. Whatever he did, sometimes he didn't, but usually he would explain what he was doing. But because he didn't, because Peter didn't just wait for the Lord to explain and keep his mouth closed, he had to be rebuked. The Lord was gentle again in his rebuke when he said, What I do thou knowest not now, but that thou shalt know hereafter. What was the Lord talking about? When would Peter know and really fully understand? When the Holy Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost and enlighten all of them and teach them in all things, then they would really get the message. Then they would really understand. Instead of gladly submitting to the Lord Peter, who is like so many of us, slow to learn. I think that's why we love him so much, don't we? Because we see ourselves in him. He was a slow learner. Peter um, plunged into even further error when he then said to the Lord, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now that is given, you don't see this in the English, but in the Greek it's given in the double negative. Thou shalt never, no, never, not like in a million years, Lord, will you wash my feet. Um, It's very, very strong. Is that how a servant is to speak to his master? I mean, he just called him Lord, and now he's, you know, telling him what to do and what not to do. (laughs) Unfortunately for Peter and for us, the Lord, I mean, fortunately, the Lord is very patient. Aren't you so glad he's patient? He is very patient 
with our ignorance. And so he proceeded to guide Peter onto higher spiritual ground, or at least he tried. He said to Peter, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then the, just the mere thought of allowing something to result in the breakdown of fellowship with Jesus just to think that there could be some breakage in the fellowship between Jesus and Peter um, caused Peter to go abruptly 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And what does he say? He says, Lord, don't just wash my feet my, you know, and my hands. I, I want a whole bath, basically, is what he's saying. Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You know, wash me from head to toe. Isn't he something? One minute. You'll never, never in a million years wash my feet. Lord says one word, you know, well, you won't have any part in any fellowship with me. <gasps> Give me a bath, Lord. <laughs> oh. A first, here's, here, again, he's blowing it, though. Because first of all, he had tried to tell the Lord what not to do. You know, when he said, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. He's telling the Lord what not to do. And he blows it again when he says, wash my, not just my feet, but my hands, my head, the whole works. Wash me. Now he's telling the Lord what to do and how to do it. You see? First of all, it tells him what not to do, and now he's telling him what to do and how to do it. <laughs> Poor Peter. Couldn't quite get it all straight. It was time for Jesus to explain, to confuse Peter, what he was doing. He said, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, meaning every bit. And ye are clean, Peter, but not all. Speaking of Judas. What we don't see in English again here is that there are true, two Greek verbs used for the word wash or washed. And they are nipto, which means to wash a part of the body, like the feet, and luo, which is where we get the word laboratory, which means to bathe all over. So one word speaks of washing just a part of the body. The other word speaks of a complete bath. And in John 13:10, both of those Greek words are used. We just see the word wash. But literally in Greek it reads, he that is bathed all over, luo, needs only to wash, nipto, his feet. If you're already bathed all over because you're saved, that's once for all. So all you need to have is your feet wash, you know, that daily cleansing. By the word of God. When a sinner is saved, he is bathed all over. His sins are forgiven and washed away. However, as we walk through this evil world, what happens? We get dirty. We get dirty. The believer doesn't need to be bathed all over again when his feet, so to speak, get dirty. You know, his walk gets dirty. But he does need to have his walk defilement washed away. Why do we need to keep our feet washed, so to speak? It's because if we don't, we have a barrier in our fellowship with the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? When you haven't confessed your sins and you have some sin in your life and you just can't seem to pray, like it seems your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and coming right back at you and you, you don't feel like you're having fellowship with the Lord because there's sin in your life? That's what he's talking He says, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. That doesn't mean you're not saved. The word part means in the Greek participation. It has reference to fellowship with the Lord. We maintain our fellowship with God by confessing our sins. 
and by staying in this book, the Word of God. When we are bathed all over in salvation, we have union with Christ, which is a settled issue. We are in Christ. We have union with him forever. He'll love us to the uttermost. In John 13, 10, Jesus said to already saved Peter, and ye are clean. However, our communion, our communion with God rests in us. It means our fellowship. We must keep ourselves daily cleansed from the world. And again, we do so how? By what we're doing this morning. By staying in the word of God. It is the water of God's word that keeps our hearts and minds clean from the world's pollutions. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Well, the final words of the Lord that the Lord said in this section here, uh, before he took off that servant's towel and resumed his seat at the Passover table, were words about who? Judas, the betrayer. When he said to Peter, ye are clean, but not all, he was referring, as you told me, to Judas. And that is clarified for us. We don't have to doubt it. It's clarified in verse 11, for he knew who should betray him. There was one disciple, Christ's blood, had not cleansed all over. There was one man whose feet were now outwardly clean, but his heart was still full of black filth. One man had become an apostate. He had allowed himself, he wasn't a victim of circumstances, he had allowed himself to become ensnared by the devil, and he had turned his back on the Savior. Yet despite Judas's evil, his maliciousness, the Lord still had a veiled warning for him. He was still, in washing his feet, he was still making an appeal to Judas to repent. Don't you think that would have broken Judas's heart right there? Knowing he had just betrayed him and sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and here he was washing his feet, feet that had just run to betray him, feet that in the next hours would, would bring the troops to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. If he was going to repent, you'd think he would. Jesus was throwing out a last-minute lifeline to Judas, but as we know, he did not. Judas did not lift up his hand to grab that lifeline and so he fell and he fell severely didn't he all right let's pray father thank you for the patience of your people thank you for their hunger for your word i pray that they have been filled this morning help us all to spend time daily in your word be washed daily with the washing of the word of god lord we just thank you for giving it to us so that we might know you and worship you thank you lord for dying for us and we just want to anoint you with our tears of gratitude and thankfulness and worship you and lord if we have expensive spikenard perfume we would just lavish it on you from head to toe and thank you from the bottom of our hearts for dying for us we love you jesus i pray each of us would truly be a testimony for you this week that you would people put people in our in our paths that we might witness to about the love of jesus christ who loves his own to the uttermost and we pray jesus in your name amen